Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2214 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing our series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 8 of a 9-week series titled, What Does God Want? This series reveals that God desires for us to be part of His family as His image bearers. I pray that this will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. We continue on with our message, our series of What Does God Want? Last week, we moved beyond the story narrative, the overview of the Bible, and we are answering the question, What Does God Want? And the answer we discovered this past seven weeks is that God wants you, and he wants everyone who will ever live. In other words, God wanted a human family. God wants co-workers to take care of his creation. God wants you to know that you, who you are and why your life has value to him. He loves you and desires that you also love him. So last week, we viewed an overall snapshot of the good news we said, what is the gospel? What is the good news? And we went through that last week. And now that we know what the good news is, we move on to that final believing aspect of it, where we become members of God's family. And then we move on to the loyalty aspect, where we focus this week and next on what discipleship is. First, we'll look at what is discipleship. And Susan's children's message fits right in with this. And then we'll move on to what do disciples do? Now, last week we learned that nothing we do permits us to join God's family except believing in that good news, which is God sent his son who was born in the line of David as the man Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who was buried, and who rose again. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Two other aspects of that is that he ascended to heaven and then he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell with everyone who believes that we are no longer separated from God, but we continually have that Holy Spirit in us at all times. So that being acknowledged that the good news, that gospel, is intended to be transformative in our lives. It's not just supposed to be something that happens and then we continue on as we were. As we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, in this this verse reminds me of the spring season. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. And you may recall that I asked a question three weeks ago. And I said, a what is a disciple? And a disciple is a follower, specifically a follower of Jesus Christ. And I defined a following as imitating or imaging Jesus being conformed into Jesus' image. And that's our ultimate destiny. And we're told this in 8 Romans 8.29, 2 Corinthians 3.18, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. For our motive is to imitate Jesus and to make, it's not to make God love us so that we're into his family. God already loved us. He loved us, as Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, why we were still sinners. He loved us while we were still enemies, as Romans chapter 5, verse 10 tells us. We get to heaven. We become part of God's family when we believe that gospel, which I just mentioned. Before that, we were lost. 
We were in need of a savior, as Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us. We were alienated from God, as Ephesians chapter 4, 18 tells us. When that was our situation, God still loved us. He didn't wait until we cleaned up our act in order to love us. He loved us first. And then when we believe the gospel, we are become members of his family. Our motive for imitating Jesus as a disciple is not to keep God loving us so that we'll continue to be saved. The key is, and this is, I don't know if you can read the small text or not, but the key is that which cannot be achieved by performance cannot be lost by performance. That means we can't do anything to achieve our salvation and there's nothing once we've accepted Christ that we could do to lose that salvation. God has accepted us into his family. Salvation has nothing to do with our own merit. It has everything to do with someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ and what he did for us. First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sins, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's the gospel. We can take no credit for salvation. Jesus Christ gets all the credit. And now we've clearly defined the parameters of salvation. We need to start thinking clearly what discipleship means. We said it's believing, which is the gospel, and then loyalty, which is what we do as disciples. We need to think carefully about how all this applies to discipleship because we fall into a performance trap, which I mentioned last week. And we need to grasp that salvation and discipleship are not the same thing. They're related, but they're not the same thing. Unfortunately, many believers, they fall into this, unconsciously fall into this trap of works and performance to the gospel because they guilt, have guilt because of sin they commit after they're saved. It results in spiritual bondage. Not the abundant life that Jesus Christ wanted for us, as he mentions in John 10.10, 10, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, and Ephesians chapter 3.20. Salvation is a gift that God gives us when we believe the gospel. Yes, it's undeserved. It's not something that we can gain because of our merit. But God loved us in spite of any hostility that we had toward him first. Discipleship is something we do as a result of believing that gospel. Just like Abraham, if you remember Abraham, God invited him into his family. Abraham believed, and then God gave him the right of circumcision and saying, this is an outward sign of your inward belief in me. That's what we equate to baptism today. We are baptized as an outward sign of an inward change in our hearts. We imitate Jesus to show our love for him and for God. Jesus is the ultimate imager of God. That means if you looked at Jesus, you could see God. And we are to imitate Christ. So when people look at us, they will see Jesus Christ and therefore see God through us. Jesus lived the way God wanted him to so others would see God in him and we're to live in the same way. Now, if you look at your bulletin insert today on the side that says, what does God want? There are many reasons to live like Jesus. To live holy, and holy means a separated life. Earning God's love isn't one of those, though. Salvation costs us nothing. It is free for all who believe the gospel. Discipleship, however, 
does cost us something. Following Jesus is not often easy. Being a disciple requires making choices, and those choices are to love God and honor God and to treat people for what they really are, fellow imagers of God that he loves and wants to bring into his family through the gospel. Think about Jesus' own life. It wasn't an easy life. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for us. He is your example, and you are to follow in his steps. Now, Jesus lived a life of sacrifice. He put God first, and then he put his neighbors, everyone else, next. Mark chapter 12, verses 31, 30 and 31. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. All of the law in the Old Testament and all of what the prophets taught in the Old Testament is summed up in these two verses. Love God, love others. If we do that, we will fulfill all the law and all the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus lived in this way when he became a human. Not so God would love him and be happy with him, and God will do the same for us. John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be, where, be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me, because you love me even before the world began. And Christ was saying, God loved us before he ever created the world. He created the world for us to maintain and take care of. Following Jesus can be challenging. Though no believer is exactly like Jesus, especially when they first believe. In a sense, since even after you believe, it's hard to follow Jesus consistently. Every disciple needs to know that they've had a changed heart and continually ask for repentance for our daily grime that we pick up because we're humans, we will fail. God wants us to continue on, though. I know I had problems and still have problems. There's things I had to stop doing and things I had to start doing. But none of that would make is to make God love me. He already loved me, no matter what. Jesus did what he did because he loved God. So must we. Jesus lived a certain way to help others so they would believe in him and in God's plan. So must we. Jesus knew why he was here on earth, and that he would die a horrible death on our behalf. But he also trusted God and for his plan and his power. And he would rise from the dead to be with his father once more. Just as we have the hope, the promise of when we die physically, we will be in the presence of God. And at some day, at the end of time, as we know it here on earth, he will transform our mortal bodies into immortal bodies, as he had after his resurrection. We must have the same eternal perspective. This current world isn't real, not our real home. It's temporary. Our permanent place is when the earth, as it is, is made into that global Eden, has been remade to a global Eden. Because of what Jesus did, we will inherit everlasting life in this world, leaving the current one behind. So there will be part of this new global Eden 
Romans chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. So as their world is remade as the Garden of Eden was, but worldwide, we will be members of that new remade world just like our bodies will be transformed into immortal bodies. The goal of our life should be to show our loyalty and gratitude to the one who saved us and then to help others enter into his kingdom, that is, to become citizens of his kingdom. You might wonder, well, what if we fail? What if we sin? Well, I have a newsflash. We all will. We all will sin, sometimes on a daily basis. And God knows that. In fact, he knows humans pretty well because he created us. He knows who we are, and he's already loved us in spite of it. That was before we had the slightest interest in doing anything to show our love back to him. He loved us while we were still sinners, as Romans chapter 5, verse 8 said. God loves us before we were in his family. So why would he love us less or stop loving us once we're part of his family? When we sin and fail, he will forgive us. He wants us to believe in that forgiveness, that he's forgiven us, and then he wants us to get back to the task of imitating Jesus Christ. So why should we live by Je like Jesus? <clears throat> well, on the same side of your bulletin insert, I have three reasons. I said a moment ago that many, there are many reasons to live like Jesus, but earning God's love is not one of those. So these are the reasons, or three of the reasons, why we should live like Jesus. First of all, sin is self-destructive, and it harms us and everyone around us. Even in my own extended family, I've seen the effects of alcoholism, drug addiction, and infidelity. It's evident that these things destroy lives, both literally and figuratively. It should be equally apparent that the world, this unbelieving culture that we live in, their primary motive is to live for their own self-satisfaction, their own self-gratification. And we know that that's only a temporary satisfaction and has no enduring value. The culture wants us to live life, to gratify our own desires and happiness, regardless of the misery that those decisions may create. It offers no eternal perspective. It beckons us to live only for today, to the world, self-gratification is the highest calling, but the Bible exposes the error of this mindset. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things that it offers, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving of physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride for our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. The second reason why we should live like Jesus is, in many aspects, the opposite of this first one. Living a godly life blesses other people. The truth is how we live and think either blesses or curses others. Jesus served people to be a blessing to them. Pursuing a lifestyle driven by self-gratification and self-absorption is not truly fulfilling. It may 
bring us some sort of fulfillment for a temporary season, but the everlasting fulfillment is not there. Every supermarket tabloid, every time you turn on the news, you see examples of this reality of the lack of self-fulfillment and self-gratitude. Blessing people not only reflects Jesus Christ, but it leads to personal fulfillment, fulfillment that will last. Your life matters when it is lived in the service of others. And thirdly, our godly life allows us to be consistent, a consistent witness for the gospel. If people look at our lives and don't see any distinction between us and the unbelieving world, and they don't see us living in a life of service for others, they don't find the gospel believable. Or at best, they'll be confused and say, well, they say they love Christ, but then I see them doing this over here. They will see our lives as a contradiction to the message of Jesus. In other words, people will expect us to live as Jesus did because we've said we love him. And that's not unreasonable. The alternative is hypocrisy, and nobody likes somebody who is a hypocrite. Living a godly life isn't about earning our place in heaven. It's not about putting God into our debt so that we're racking up to what I jokingly call God points. So our passage, like the following three, explains how we should live as a disciple. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he finds acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. And then I have a graphic on your bulletin insert on that side of the second verse. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Second passage is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. But God stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. In a wealthy home, some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay. The expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones are used for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you will be those special utensils for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you will be ready for the master's use for every good work. And then the third passage is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort in his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly to, with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Instead, be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. And don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So these passages give us some idea how we should live as disciples. But we still haven't gotten to the specific of what is discipleship. How does a disciple live or what does a disciple do? Fortunately, Jesus and the original disciples, those who were first called Christians, made this very clear. 
Jesus never told his followers to do something that he didn't do himself, and he showed them how to do it. They, in turn, followed his example. They told others how to live. They showed it in their own lives on how they were living. And they did this in the early days of that fledging church in Jerusalem. Now that we have clarified what is a disciple, and that's imaging Jesus Christ in our lives, we begin the next topic. We're going to start with just two of those elements today, two of those attributes, and then we'll finish with eight next week. The first one is, on your other side of your bulletin insert, what does a disciple do? It might surprise you that Jesus didn't command his disciples to do all that many things. His vision for loving God and others wasn't all that complicated. But the things that he did command, they were profound and life-changing. When we put them into practice, so we'll start with the most essential point, of the 10 attributes of what we do as a disciple, the first one sort of incorporates all the other nine. The first one is disciples love God, their neighbor, and each other. We already know how Jesus summed up this life dedicated to God. The greatest commands, as I read in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandments is greater than these. Everything that Jesus taught fit into these two verses. Jesus did these things, and he told his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 31, but I will do what my Father requires of me so that the world will know that I love the Father. How did he show his love for the Father? John chapter 15, verse 9. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. Jesus asked his disciples, just do what I've been showing you what to do. And that's what we're to do as disciples. Say to others who are not in the kingdom of God yet, do what I show with my life. I not only tell you what to live, but I show you by my life. Jesus asked his disciples to do the same. And his comments on these two of the greatest commandments makes it very clear. Jesus went further by using himself as an example. He told his disciples to love each other as he has loved them. When he did that, he was they were be obeying him and also pleasing God. So he said to them in John chapter 15, verses 13 through 17, there's no greater love than to lay, one down, one's down, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master does not confide in slaves. You are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. This commandment, this is my command, love each other. He summed his commands up and love each other. And he also went on in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Did it say go out and do this or that to prove that you're my disciples? It said the world will know you are my disciples when you love each other properly. It's really rather simple. And yet it's so difficult at times for us to do. Love God, love each other. According to Jesus are the fundamental indispensable marks of a disciple. 
Jesus did not use these two commands in any way contradictory. There was no tension between loving God and loving others. On the contrary, they were the same two sides of the same coin. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. If you love God properly, you will love others properly. If you love others properly, you will love God properly. It's as simple as that. Love God and loving others. How do we love people, though? Well, the highest expression was just what Jesus expressed in John chapter 15, verse 13. There's no greater love than to lay one's life down for a friend. And Paul expanded on this in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Are we to only love those who love us back? Are we only to love those who are our friends? No, God loved us while we were his enemies, and we're to do the same for other people. Short of this ultimate expression, I can't think of a better description than 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and it pretty much says all it needs to be said about loving others. So here are the characteristics of love in that passage. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Simple, yet profound. Seems easy to do, yet we struggle with it so much on a daily basis. You'll typically see these listed on a Valentine's Day card or some sort of romantic swag, something you would give your spouse or those who are very close to you. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, isn't a romantic passage at all. It's not about romantic love. This is the way that we should treat all people, people in general. Whether we, they recognize it as love is irrelevant. God will see, and he will know. One more point before moving on. It's crucial to realize that basically everything that follows, all the other nine attributes of what a disciple does, extends from his first command, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So loving each other, loving people, that's the central point of orientation for everything a disciple is supposed to do. Everything else that we cover in these next nine attributes, one today and the following eight next week, are summed up in that one. Just like the law and the prophets are all summed up in two small, short verses. The next attribute that we should have as a disciple is to disciples take care of each other. That's on your bulletin insert in the bottom half there. The elements of discipleship is an outgrowth of loving one another. Taking care of each other means that we're being in and we're nurturing a community. As more and more people came to embrace the gospel in the days following Pentecost, as is shown in Acts chapter 2, they became part of this growing community that would be called the church. 
In this case, it was the church in Jerusalem. And the New Testament term didn't refer to a building or any type of official organization or legal structure. Instead, the New Testament tells us that the church in Jerusalem was notoriously poor. They didn't have a building to meet in, and there were thousands of new believers by this time. So what did they do? They didn't have any official legal status, so the believers were often persecuted, not only by Rome, but by the fellow Jews, as we're told in Acts 3, 4, and 5. If the church wasn't about a building or a legal organization that had some sort of legal status in society, what does it mean? How did the followers of Jesus sustain themselves? They formed a tight, close-knit, self-sacrificing community. Too often in our modern churches, we use the word community to describe something more like people with mutual interests, like Buckeye fans, the band together, or somebody who shares an interest in some good cause. That falls short of what the New Testament community was. The New Testament church community was a family. The difference was between a family and a group of people who bond because of a mutual interest are several things. But would you expect someone to give you money to pay your rent and groceries just because you happen to be a Buckeye fan? Would you expect someone to provide you a job or fix your car just because you voted for the same person or you ran in at some sort of 5K race to support a good cause? That could happen, but probably not. But would you expect your own family members, your flesh and blood relatives, to help you out when you're in need? And that's how the church is supposed to work. The early church in Jerusalem, our church here in Marietta, Putnam being one of those congregations of a church. And that's what it was like in the, the early church. Let me read Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Imagine that, 3,000-member church instantly in Pentecost. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared their money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Because how the church acted and showed their love for one another, additional people were coming into the fellowship of believers every single day. The passage doesn't describe any type of communism or socialism. It doesn't describe any type of political system. There's nothing in this passage about the government or the state giving direction or using some sort of coercion for the behavior that we see. It was entirely voluntary. It describes the behavior of a healthy, normal family. Families meet the needs of their family members. These families just happen to be a family of several thousand people in Jerusalem by then. And this is a picture of what disciples do. It's they nurture community. They love one another and support one another as if they were flesh and blood family. That means sharing our resources. For some believers, that may indicate money. For others, that may mean time or service or some sort of specialized skill that you have. 
Basically, community does what it needs to meet the needs of people in that community. With so many people involved, you might wonder how the community could know each other's needs on a personal basis. Well, believers would gather in the temple as a larger gathering, which usually caused conflict with other Jews, but was a perfect ground for evangelism, to bring other people into the faith. But then they met from house to house, as we're told in Acts 2 and 5. And this means that the church in Jerusalem, the original Christian community, was a network of these smaller little groups. Just like Putnam is one church out of probably several dozen in Marietta. We're a smaller group that meets together to meet the needs, close needs, of our membership here. People in these smaller numbers within that community were that first line of support. Now, we might know the needs of fellow members here at Putnam. We might not know the needs of somebody across town. These communities were the entry point for new believers. The Christian community was for people who would embrace the gospel, and each community participated in the discipleship and with their members in specific ways. But what about the broader community, the larger community? What did it look like? The first thing that usually happened when new believers accepted Christ is that they were baptized. Baptism was a public act, and it was observed and witnessed by those fellow community members. It was to identify the saying, yes, I am a disciple of Jesus now. And it was an external show of an internal change. It signified several things. From among them, their sins were forgiven because of what Jesus had done on the cross. And now that they were to live a new life. Baptism was that first step for entering life in a community. The persons being baptized acknowledged their faith in Christ, and those who were part of that membership, that small community, witnessed their commitment, and they were there to support them. When small communities of believers met together, they discovered their needs of individual community members. If they could meet those needs of those people in that small community, they would do so. This allowed the believers who met the needs on an intimate basis, and they would realize that by helping others, they were imitating Christ. And it helped, those who were being helped learned in real time what it meant like, means to live like Jesus. But what if the needs were more significant than this small community could provide? They, they just didn't have the resources to do so. Well, that's when it went to a larger community. The original apostles in the New Testament, those disciples of Christ, were the leaders of that fledging Jerusalem church overall. And we know of a time where there was problem with the distribution of food. So the disciples then appointed helpers, which we call deacons, to organize the daily distribution of that food throughout the entire community. It's not unlike when we give to the food pantry. They meet needs that we can never meet on an individual basis. So Jeff and Candy and their organization there helps those who are in daily needs, both physically and spiritually. But the other practice of the earlier church was in regard to a holding meals or feast. It was a remembrance of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a memorial celebration of that last supper when Jesus told his disciples that his body and blood would be given for them. Jesus told them that giving his life was the fulfillment of this new covenant. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. The description of this feast was the Lord's Supper. It says, 
that the Lord's Supper was to remember what Jesus had done for us. So Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul rewrites that information for the Corinthian church and says, this is how you're to hold the Lord's Supper. It was also another way to, to ensure that those who were poor in the community were getting their physical needs met also. And it was done in these small community groups as they had suppers or meals together. And part of that meal was to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we do on a monthly basis here, what we call communion. So today we've explored a couple things. What is discipleship? And then we looked at the first two attributes of 10 of what do disciples do. And that allows us to know once we're saved, once we've accepted Christ as our Savior and we're part of this community, this family of God, that now we have a task to do. Not so God will love us, but to show our love to God. Love God, love others. Love others and love God. And part of that is to form a community of believers so that we can help one another and strengthen one another in the faith. And that's what we at Putnam Congregational Church is our mission to do. Whether it's few or many, we meet the needs of those within our community. And as we have opportunities and we expand our services out to those in the greater community, in the Church of Marietta, or the Church of Ohio, or the Church of the United States, and the worldwide church. And that's how we are supposed to function as disciples. I've listed the scripture verses for next week in your bulletin, because um, there's many of them there. So if you have an opportunity this week, read through those passages in preparation for the final eight attributes of what do disciples do. And then we'll finish this series, and then we'll have three messages for the, over the Easter holiday, and then after that we'll start into the book of he Hebrews, going through the entire book of Hebrews after that. So let's look to the Lord in prayer today. Father, we thank you that, first of all, that you saved us, that once we put in our faith and belief in that gospel, which is simple yet profound, that we become members of your family. But once we're members of your families, we're to love you and love others. We're to become a community of believers to encourage and to strengthen, to help those that are in need of help, whether it's physical or spiritual, Father. Help us to do our part. We thank you for Putnam Congregational Church and allowing us to be a community of believers to encourage and to help those that are here. Help us always be faithful to your calling, Father, to show our love for you because you first loved us. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.